happen. First, though, let's talk about the reopening plan and the numbers and the targets that have been set for this four-stage plan to be unrolled in BC. Daniel Coombs joins me now, UBC professor in the Department of Mathematics and Institute of Applied Mathematics. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Yeah. What are your thoughts looking at this and the way the plan is laid out in these four stages uh, based on percentages? So when we're talking about things such as case counts, hospitalizations and uh, the minimum percentage of people that have been given at least one dose of vaccine. Yeah, I think that's um, a very important aspect of the plan is is that, you know, there's the, some flexibility has been retained, you know, um, Dr. Henry and, and the, and the uh, provincial government, they don't know exactly what's going to happen over the next few weeks. And I think they acknowledge that in the plan by, by saying that, um, you know, if, if, the, if the case targets aren't hit or there's some kind of holdup with vaccinations, then, then they, they're reserving the right to, to, um, to push things back just a little bit. And I think, I think that's really important to have some flexibility. Um, just, you know, we've seen throughout the pandemic that things can change in, in unexpected ways um, and even fairly rapidly. So I think this, this is a good aspect of, of what they put forward. Does one of those areas, is it more important than others as far as when we look at those percentages and we're talking about, well, the percentage for the doses, stage one, 60 percent, stage two, 65, then going to 70 and 70 percent, I think, in three is stage three and four. Can can we make those are, are those good ways of kind of measuring matching the amount of people who have been vaccinated to what level of socialization can be opened up again um i i think what they've done is is reasonable i mean i think they're very achievable targets i mean we're still vaccinating in the province at, at a very fast rate um you know typically 40 50 000 people per day are getting their first dose um inevitably at some point that's going to slow down um but but we're not we're not at that point yet um, it does take a few weeks for those vaccines to, you know, kick in within, within a person's immune system. It's not an instant transition to, to immunity. Um, I, I, I will say it would have been nice to see something about the, the second dosing in the plan because, you know, the, the second dose isn't just for show. It, it actually has, a, you know, an immunological impact. Um, but the, the delay that we're doing here in, in, in Canada doesn't seem to... Well, actually seems like it may actually enhance the effectiveness of the second dose to have that longer delay in some cases. But, um, you, you know, the, that second dose is important. And we hear about the variant, uh, you know, variants uh, around the world. And, and in, you know, there is some information indicating that that second dose is important to, to, to boost the immunity against, against those variants. And and that's certainly been the uh, what uh, many people were mentioning yesterday too, and not, not in BC's hands really. BC can only deal with the number of doses that they're allocated uh, from the federal program. Uh, but it would be good, I would imagine, like you said, to know when we're going to have everybody fully vaccinated because one dose is not being fully vaccinated. And and would that give us kind of a, a much better roadmap as far as where things are going? Um. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. I was surprised. I, I think Ontario, in, in what they had released, had mentioned the second doses. Um, I don't remember if they had given specific targets on that. Um, I mean, it's it's clearly the plan is is to push as high into the you know 80 percent range or maybe even higher of people that can be vaccinated uh, and then come back. And I was happy to hear some slightly unclear information, but I think Dr. Henry is going to talk about that more tomorrow that they they are going to get those second doses out more on the sort of 
you know, seven to eight week timescale was my impression rather than the full 16 weeks. And that, that's being driven by the doses coming in. But, but, but you know, it's um, the, the science on this is, is developing. You know, we don't have the full picture of one dose versus two dose and the, you know, vis-a-vis different variants and, um, and things like that. And, and, you know, it's, it's also important to note that we don't have a, a super precise notion of, of how, you know, phase one or phase two is, is going to affect transmission, um, you know, especially with these uncertainties around vaccination. So I think, you know, it's, it's reasonable to, to start reopening, you know, now and in the next few weeks, take small steps and have a, a plan of how you can delay things so that you don't see a resurgence. And when we're talking about the reopening and doing modeling numbers, and, and when you're talking about the transmission, you're right, we, we don't know what it's going to look like. But do we factor in that, yes, these rules are in place and they're being lifted on certain dates, but there are going to be a number of people who don't follow the rules. There are going to be a number of people who continue following them even when they could relax the rules. Is there a way to kind of factor in that, I guess, margin of error when we're looking at these predictions? You, you can always run your model with, you know, plus or minus 20 percent on what you might think, what, what you think would happen. You can look historically, you know, so uh, as of today, we're kind of partially back towards, uh, where, you know, the restrictions that were in place early, earlier in, in the year and, and late last year. Um, and, and, and you can kind of look at it that way. What, what is difficult, though, is, as you bring up, is, is the psychological aspect. As you, know, as you talk to people, some people are you know, probably excited to have, have their friends over to their house. And some people are saying, well, you know, I'm still going to wait until everyone in my family is vaccinated or I'm going to wait until I've had my second shot. Um, it's, it's very hard to know, how, you know what the reality on the ground will be. You know, it sounds... I would. I was going to say it sounds simple when Dr. Henry talks about it. I think it sounds anything but simple. But there's so many aspects that have to be have to be thought about, right? But uh, you know, the the reality is always is always more complicated. And and you know, we, we may have a few surprises still still coming. And not to oversimplify it either. But when we look at the two numbers, I think that we often don't compare. We're talking about a population of about 5 million people in this province. The numbers as of yesterday of active cases is less than 4,000. It's 3,782. Just looking at those two numbers, it seems like we're in a pretty good place. Things have been going extremely well for the last few weeks, in my view. Um, You know, it it is, I mean, obviously I'm really concerned that we still have people in hospital in ICU and people still um, are dying every day from, from this disease. But you know, on the on the other side, the vaccination's been going extremely fast, and the numbers of active cases have really been dropping rapidly. Um, seems seems like you know there's there's a still um, you know Fraser Health is not dropping as rap or hasn't been dropping as rapidly as as, as uh, Vancouver Coast or other areas of the, of the province. Um, and I I feel I, I do feel like once once we've seen those drops in in all you know su- substantial drops in all of the regions and those are sustained over a couple of weeks, I think we're all going to start to feel um, a lot better about, um, you know, where we're going to end up by by midsummer. All right, Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for coming back on the show. 
great. Thank you for having me. Well, the travel section of the reopening plan in BC talks about how and when people will be able to travel around the province. So the non-essential travel ban, that's the one between the three defined zones, that continues at this point, but not for long if the numbers continue to go in the way health officials want to see them go. As of June 15th, that could be the earliest date, the travel ban would be lifted. Recreational travel throughout BC would be encouraged as well. There will be increased services on both BC Transit and BC Ferries. So what does that mean for places that get a lot of tourist visits? Let's uh, let's check in with Mako Noel, the mayor of Euclid. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Jill. How are you today? Uh, very well. How about you? Wonderful, thank you. Uh, so what does that mean for a place like Euclid, where a lot of people do make the trip, but whether it's for a weekend or for a week mm-hmm. or for a few days from other parts of the province? How do you prepare to welcome people back? Well, a couple things where, you know, obviously this is, we've got a few weeks before um, uh, the mainland uh, community is going to work its way, you know, towards Euclid. So we're going to prepare these businesses are actively right now opening up their dining rooms and some of them are opening up their motels and with the anticipation that uh, come middle of June things are going to be ramping up beyond travel from Vancouver Island so generally it's welcomed and uh, we're just preparing ourselves. How has it been? I know that there were some concerns earlier with people camping there, people still coming Mm -hmm. to the west coast of the island, even when they were asked politely and the travel ban was put in place to try and avoid that. That's really, that's definitely subsided in the last few months. I think people started getting the message, but you know, we've been in this battle, all of us, uh, for a long time. So, and, and, and we had weather in our effect favor. There's not too, pe- too many people that want to go camping, uh, during the winter months on the West Coast. <laughs> that, that is true. Very, very true. Uh, so as far as workers and that, we've been hearing from other restaurants in other parts of mm-hmm. BC that getting the labor back has been a huge issue, getting people to actually come and work in the service industry. Do you think that's, or is that going to be an issue in Euclid as well? Yeah, we're not uh, immune from that one as well. So we're, you know, when when this last uh, sh- uh, circuit breaker came, a lot of the the restaurants had staff and accommodations booked. So obviously, a lot of those people have um, found other jobs. So that's going to be the biggest struggle. So we're hoping over the next few weeks here, as uh, the reopening starts, things like getting employees and housing and accommodation uh, those are going to be the top subject matters for most of those employers. And are you confident that things can be back in place? Should the recreational travel open up at the earliest again, the earliest that this plan says so being June 15th? Yeah, I, you know, we'd be optimistic. Our tourism and clueless working on uh, some more in- information there. So about being a good visitor. And I think the biggest thing about coming to the West Coast, uh, especially these small towns that have been pretty much locked down, just be able to bring, bring your patience as well. So bring your camera and bring your patience and we'll get through this uh, together. Uh, is there any issue as far as uh, I, I know in the beginning of this or when people were still traveling, even last summer, a lot of people mm-hmm. were bringing food with them, say uh, they were stocking up mm-hmm. at grocery stores, going to places so they could kind of minimize the interactions in the communities. Are you hopeful people will still do that? Or is it important as well that people that are coming do spend money and do support the, uh, the local economy? Yeah, again, that's a gradual. We we really appreciate it for those that did show up prepared. There's a lot of people that are revisiting the area, so they know you know they they know where they're staying and they know some of the guidelines. Some people 
frown, you know, our one and only grocery store. We ask for one family member to be in there. Don't bring your family or floor. And quite frankly, I think people have, have got it. And, um, and again, there's nothing wrong with being prepared on your first visit coming to the West Coast as we slowly, gradually open and, and, and dining and everything else um, starts to uh, ramp up at, you know, 100% capacity over the next month or two. And do you think there will be any permanent changes or are we going to see a return to the same types of recreation and the same types of things that do draw people to places like Euclid? Well, I think one of the things that that came here out of it, the outside dining, I think it doesn't matter which town you go in. It's just uh, it's something that I think is going to be here. Uh, If we didn't have COVID, I don't think the liquor branch would allow people to. Um, you know, to, to get outside. So outside um, dining is here to stay as far as I'm concerned. Um, obviously, our big hope, the, those, those um, activity providers like the kayakers and the whale watching and a lot of those salmon fishing charters, um, they have been uh, probably the heaviest hit here, uh, not uh, losing possibly their second season. And um, so um, we'll see where that brings us. So how important is that going to be then as far as uh, we've been talking about recreational travel within BC, potentially starting June 15th? How important is it that the borders open up and you get international tourists and visitors back? Well, 2020 was when we did have that that summer that we had. We were very busy on the West Coast, quite frankly. Some people say it's the busiest we've ever had. And, and it was a lot of great um, British Columbians and Canadians that were coming here and enjoying the West Coast. So if we can have a even a sort of a repeat or even 75% of that, uh, that would be a welcomed um, international travel. I'll let those people uh, that get paid the big money to make those decisions. I think, I think this gradual reopening is welcome for a small town like ourselves. And uh, when we get to the international level, uh, again, I, I think we're all going to be flying somewhere to go um, to get, you know, get, get a little bit of peace of the world somewhere. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today about this. Uh, Look forward to getting back to that part of the province soon, I hope. Uh, Thanks again so much, Mako, for your time. I appreciate it. Be safe out there. Take care. Well, if you have been grocery shopping, maybe you have been purchasing various types of meat. And if you have thought or noticed that your bill has been a little higher, well, you are not alone. I think a lot of people maybe have been noticing the grocery bill, especially if you're buying meat, is higher. So what is causing the price to go up? To talk more about this, we are joined by Sylvain Charlebois, head of the Agri-Food, Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, so why does meat cost more these days? Oh, uh, well, yeah. In the, middle, in the middle of barbecue season, too. <laughs> uh, isn't that disgusting? The middle. I, th- I think, haven't we just kicked off barbecue season? yeah true very true um well there's there's a lot of things going on around the world uh asia's buying we're selling uh china's actually buying next year's harvest if you can believe it yeah Hmm. and that's putting a lot of pressure on 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 grain prices corn is up 80 percent wheat is up 77 percent year to year uh, barley, so there's a bit of an ag super cycle going on here, and when when that happens, typically it costs more to feed animals. Um, I mean, some some products that we buy aren't necessarily processed, so we basically get hit directly. Uh, at the meat counter, you would have noticed um, the three components of the 
meat trifecta, chicken and pork and beef, all three of them have been affected by by inflation, which is really rare. Uh, typically, you would have one or two, but not three. So this is kind of what's going on right now. And the percentage that we're seeing them go up as well. So it's if, if what I'm looking at is right, beef is has risen the most by about five percent, followed yep. by chicken, followed by pork, or or the other followed by pork, then by chicken. Yeah, that's the national average, so I don't know what's going on in your neck of the woods, but that's typically what we're seeing right now. That's 5% since January, not year to year. Hmm. <laughs> so so since the beginning of this year, so we're in May right now, uh, we were expecting meat prices to go up by as much as 6% by the end of this year. Uh, I think both you and I, we spoke in December when we released Canada's food price report, and uh, and that's what we uh, figured out. So we're still um, we're still on 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 path to actually reach that target. Uh, but still, I mean, six percent is is a lot of money for 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 people. So for the average family, given what's happening right now, if you're if you have two kids, two adults in your household, you're looking at an extra bill of seven hundred dollars for the year. Which is a lot of money when you put that along with everything else and given what's been happening. Can we blame this at all on the pandemic? We should. We always do, right? <laughs> yes. <These days? laughs> COVID is responsible for everything. Well, not everything. Uh, of course, COVID has complicated things with supply chains. Obviously, costs are, are up. Uh, it has created some delays um, you, you need to follow certain protocols. So obviously, uh, logistical costs are are higher in the last 12 months. So, but that's probably maybe 20% of the reason why prices are much higher. Uh, and especially with meat in Canada, we've had 16 closures. And close to you in BC, of course, next door you have Alberta, and the two largest. Um, slaughterhouses, uh, the, the two largest outbreaks were in Red Deer and the High River, and, uh, and, and those two closures really has cost a lot of me money for, for the sector. So that's kind of what's going on. So if you go and buy meat, you are paying for all of these problems. Uh, do you think it's enough that we will see a shift in people's eating habits in that if you're looking like you said if it's a $700 increase to your grocery bill maybe you don't become vegetarian overnight or you don't cut meat out completely but I would think this might have people rethinking maybe how many days of the week they have meat in their diet. Yeah well over the last few years we've been monitoring uh, meat preferences in Canada and uh, more and more people are uh, reducing the amount of meat they consume every single day. Uh, it, it's a trend. It's been ongoing. And, and the reasons we're seeing uh, are the environment, health, and animal welfare. But the one that has creeped up this year is price. Uh, the cost to buy meat is basically either number two or number one on someone's list if they're looking at moving away from meat Number one is, is, is often health, but close number two is, is price now. Uh, if people shift, though, and then start, say, buying more produce or buying other products, can we expect the prices there to go up as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the three sections of the grocery store where we're expecting higher prices, uh, produce is, is always on the list, given how volatile that section is. It's incredible. Every year we don't know what to expect. So we're, we're, still, uh, we're still expecting a rocky ride in produce. Meat, as we just discussed, is another one. The last one this year is bakery. Uh, bakery has been a non-story uh, in Canada over the last decade or so, but we are, because of what's going on with commodity prices, we are expecting bakers to charge a little more for that loaf. Hmm. But when you say a little more, do you, do you have an idea <laughs> on, on how much that it, might be? Yeah, so a little more. Uh, when So we, when we did our forecast uh, for bakery, uh, it's 4.5 to 6.5 percent. So it's if you're if you're paying a dollar for a loaf, it's six cents. All right. You're not going to break the bank, but, but it bothers you know, especially in light of what happened with the bread price fixing sort of uh, scandal a few years ago. So the Canadians aren't necessarily willing to pay more for bread at this point because of what happened. <laughs> right. We have not forgotten that yet. Um, interesting, though. So when you say talk about the, the increase going going back to the meat prices, that these are just these, these are increases, the 5 percent, 4 percent and 3 percent for beef, pork and chicken. These yeah. are in the past four months. I mean, that's not something that could that can't go up that much every four months and still be something that that people can afford. So when might we expect it to level off or can we? Yeah, it, so it will. I, I thought you were going to ask when 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 our price is going to go down, and I was going to about I was about to laugh. <laughs> At the meat counter, grocers are very careful playing around with prices. Rarely, you'll you may have a sale here and there because they have too much inventory, but very rarely over time you're seeing you see prices for chicken. Uh, beef and pork go down. So, uh, but things will level off. I think over the summer, uh, beef hasn't been hard hit by what's going on right now because of the production cycle. We are expecting beef prices to go up by uh, by five percent in the fall, not right now. So right now, pork has gone up already. So that's leveling off right now. Chicken is pretty stable, but we are expecting prices to go up as well. So, if I were you, looking at the weekend. Uh, if you're looking at a like a if you if you really a, if you're a beef lover, beef is going to be probably the cheapest right now for the entire year. All right, so people should uh, if they are beef lovers, uh, maybe stock up on that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, you mentioned the, the slaughterhouses that were closed down that were impacted by this, and there was uh, a light shone on the industry of the meat. Industry. Do you think that will change also, or, or have people, I guess, paying more attention on are they going to buy the cheapest meat they possibly can and not care about how it was raised, how it was slaughtered? Or might people think, okay, if I'm going to pay a bit more, I want to go find, a, say, a smaller farm. I want to find what, what I might find, uh, call something more ethical and feel better about doing that. Are we seeing that shift at all? It's... I mean, gradually, uh, you can see that Canadians are, are asking questions, uh, and they're, they're reconsidering their relationship with animal, animal protein in general. So over the last uh, 16 months, we've heard closures. We've heard, unfortunately, we've heard employees uh, getting sick. Some have died even. I mean, people will react differently to, um, to different stories, but clearly you can see that 
the market is much more fragmented. People are looking at uh, different sources of protein. Look at Oatly this week in the United States. They, they went public, raised 10. The company is worth $10 billion, and, and they're offering a dairy alternative. $10 billion. You wouldn't have seen that a few years ago. No, that's uh, pretty amazing. All right. Yep. Uh, Sylvain, do you eat meat? I do. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're stocking up for the it. weekend? <laughs> Absolutely. No, we love meat, and uh, but we also love uh, plant-based products, too. I mean, we, uh, we, we, we enjoy all sorts of products, and we love innovation, too. So bring it on. So a lot of information released yesterday as far as the reopening plan. Tomorrow we are going to learn more about vaccination rollout in this province. The news conference happening tomorrow at 2 p.m. And you'll hear that live right here on CKNW. We want to talk about one particular comment. Not the most important, but something I think a lot of people kind of stopped and listened. Many people were very excited and encouraged by this. Others... Not so much. It's one of the things that I'm missing most in this pandemic. And um, I, I've been trying to pitch to the Premier that we should have BC Hug Day in July when we, when we get to that point where, we're, where we can take our masks off and have those uh, closer social interactions that we used to have with people that we're close to, whether that's family or friends. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about the idea of BC Hug Day. Certainly a lot of discussions were sparked by that comment. Let's bring in Maureen McGrath, host of the Sunday Night Health Show, to talk more about this. Maureen, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. And and I should say congratulations as well. Ben tells me that you have been with Chorus (laughs) for nine years. That's great. Nine years. Thank you very much. Started out as one little uh, segment on sexual desire. <laughs> look and, at me now. And look at you now. That is that is great. So, so congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Let's talk about this. I found an old, I think it was a Time Magazine article about why some people are so opposed to hugging, whereas other people love it. I think other than cilantro, I can't think of something that divides people as much as <laughs> hugging. Uh, why is it you think that some people love it and some people hate it well i I, there's probably a genetic component probably something to do with uh uh, somebody's childhood or um the demonstration of uh, physical affection um and and just overall comfort but it's i've often said it's unfortunate that we weren't able to hug during the pandemic because hugging can actually help reduce feelings of loneliness and the physical effects of stress, which we all experienced throughout this pandemic, some much more so than others. Something else I thought was interesting that Dr. Bonnie Henry said, she's an introvert hugger. Mm. <laughs> even Yes. What does that so, mean? I am not exactly sure. You wouldn't expect, but I don't think you would expect an introvert to be a hugger. You might be more inclined to expect an extrovert to be a hugger. And, um, you know, uh, some people are comfortable with it. Some are not. But there are benefits to hugging. They boost feel-good hormones like dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone, oxytocin, which is the love hormone. So there are significant benefits. It even has antidepressant effects. So that can elevate mood and control anxiety. And again, reduce those feelings of loneliness. Unless you don't like hugging, in which case it can bring on anxiety. It can bring on a whole bunch of different feelings. 
that's right. If you don't like hugging, it, it can be extremely uncomfortable for you, and you may not get those releases of those feel-good hormones. It may increase your stress level. It may raise your blood pressure. But for many people who enjoy hugging, it will actually reduce their blood pressure and improve heart health. So for those who don't like hugging, they're going to have to find another activity, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm on it. (laughs) Uh, I found this. So there was a study done back in 2012, so a while ago. But it was a study that found if you were raised in a home where the people who raised you, your parents, guardians, whoever it was, uh, the people raising you, if you were raised in a frequent hugging situation, you were much more likely to be a hugger in adulthood, which I think makes sense. And it goes the other way, too, that if you were raised in a house without hugging, the very thought of it can make you uncomfortable and you're probably not going to engage in a lot of hugging as an adult. I I can see where that would be the case, but I I do think there probably are people who were born just they don't like to be hugged. You, you can see that with children. You know, some people are, some children are very uncomfortable with it. Some people are very uncomfortable with it. And they may have, in fact, grown up in a hugging environment. But I think the education around hugging is very important, especially if British Columbia does engage in a hugging day. Um, I think it'll be a, a huge day of relief because I think a lot of people have realized the, that health is your wealth in this pandemic. And so a hug lowers blood pressure. When you, when you talk or sit close to somebody or hug somebody, you release that oxytocin, which is the cuddle hormone, and that can help to relax and lower anxiety. So, I mean, we don't want to force people to do something that they don't want to do, and people can celebrate a hug day in other ways, and it doesn't mean we can't get together and do that um, together. But um, realizing the benefits of hugging, it's quite often uh, compared to meditation, which makes us more mindful and aware. But I don't think we're going to change people um, from huggers to from non-huggers to huggers, quite frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable hugging some people, but I'm not comfortable <laughs> when others hug me. <laughs> right. And that's, you raised a very crucial point to this. And I think it's the aggressive, casual huggers that I would like to wean out of this completely. There are some people that just love hugging everybody and they hug hello and they hug goodbye and love hugging family, friends, what have you. And they're very aggressive and they'll come at you with their arms open saying, I'm a hugger, as if you don't get any say in the matter. And then suddenly you're right up against somebody, whether you want to be or not. That is correct. And I have noticed an increase in hugging amongst uh, friends um, over the last few years, I would say. You know, there are two main operating systems we run on on a day-to-day basis, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems. And, and our sympathetic nervous system gets activated when we're stressed or perceive some kind of threat. But if we want to balance our mind and body, we have to rely on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for that rest and recovery. And hugs will activate parts of the brain that control the nerve of the parasympathetic system, which is the vagus nerve. Now, that's a lot of science, but oftentimes I think sometimes people who are hugging all the time are just trying to reduce their own stress level. They know that that makes them feel better. And so perhaps that is why we're calling out those shameless huggers, (laughs) shameless, vicious huggers, no, um, out there that are really invading somebody's personal space or potentially could be. Um, So I think we're going to have to take a slow path 
to get back to hugging. Yeah, you know, get a teddy bear or a body pillow. Stop, <laughs> stop stopping people in the street and hugging them. <laughs> I think you can, you can tell from my comments where I stand on hugging. But I do appreciate as well, when we're talking about, and we've talked a lot about people in long-term care, obviously there is a place for hugging and for social, uh, being very close to somebody, a family member. Uh, I re- when my nieces and nephews were little, of course I would hug them if they wanted to be hugged, if they came to hug me. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm not a, a complete monster in that sense, but I would put myself <laughs> firmly in the camp that I am not a casual hugger and I do not like it at all. I, I don't even, I don't, I don't hug the adults in my family. I can't stand it. And I make it very clear to them. It's not that I don't like you. I just don't want to hug you. And I'm just a bit of a hugger, as I said, but I will say that not only are hugs beneficial for older people, they're also beneficial for newborns. And there's an abundance of research that has demonstrated that skin-to-skin contact between a mother and a newborn, and they often bring in huggers from outside if if the mother is not available. But it helps to reduce crying, it can improve sleep, and there's a sense of body ownership, and it reduces anxiety. And it also uh, contributes to the production of growth hormone. And so that helps with physical development. And so if you're not a hugger and you've had a baby who's been born early, for example, it's good to understand that that could be beneficial for your baby, that increased touch and that hugging. All right. A lot to talk about, all because Dr. Henry talked about perhaps having a BC hug day. We'll see if that happens or not. (laughs) Maureen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. You're very welcome. I will never hug you.